Good evening. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Canon Chancellor of St Paul's, and I really do want to welcome you all here for this first debate of three in our series, The City and the Common Good. What kind of city do we want? It is a series that has been possible to put on here under the dome because of our partnership with CCLA, a leading ethical investment manager and a refreshingly practical pioneer in the field. We've been delighted to work with them in recent years on a number of events, and we're very grateful indeed for their sponsorship and support in bringing us all together this evening. Money has an almost magical ability to turn us into people we would prefer not to be without us even noticing. And there's been a sort of mystical uniqueness about economic life that has taken it out of the normal scope of discussion about intelligent choice and the humane evaluation of options. The truth is that like other things, money is a metaphor. And monetary exchange is one of those areas of life in which our decisions show us who we are. It is raw material there to be scrutinized to see what our long-term goals actually are and whether humanity can manifest anything more than just survival or profit. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury often reminded us, the word economy has its origins in the word for housekeeping. A household is somewhere where life is lived in common and housekeeping an attempt to stabilise that common life where its members grow and flourish in useful ways and where the vulnerable members are protected. And it is that common life of wanting to bring back conversation to the structure of economic life with a scrutiny about our choices and long-term goals that is at the heart of this series. It's an attempt to contribute to a vital discourse about how we become more recognisable to ourselves at a time when we understand that regulation alone is not enough, for the issues need to be internalised in terms of the sort of life that we find desirable and, here's the important word of tonight, good. This series continues debate that the St. Paul's Institute has been fostering since 2009, when on the eve of the second post-Lehman meeting of the G20 in London, we hosted a public discussion with the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown and the Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. A series of events has ensued looking at sources of value, trust and meaning in financial markets and the role of those markets in human flourishing. And at the Institute, we remain absolutely committed to facilitating and contributing to the process of public dialogue and revaluation. The response to ongoing financial instability has moved well beyond regulatory reform and is increasingly focusing on issues of culture, identity and meaning. We know we are about more than spending money we don't have on things we don't want 
in order to impress people we don't like. But why does it so often not seem that way? And why, when light appears at the end of the tunnel, does more tunnel seem to get ordered? After four years of discussion about what has gone wrong and who is responsible, symbolized with intensity by the Occupy movement, there is now a wide and loud call for step changes that will reinforce a culture of integrity. But objectives need identifying before the steps. So just what kind of city do we want? A series of this importance needs a chair of equal measure, and we are very delighted indeed to have Stephanie Flanders here with us this evening and at our other two debates. Her distinguished career has included working as speechwriter and senior advisor to US Treasury Secretary Lawrence H. Summers in the Clinton administration, as a reporter for the New York Times and the FT, principal editor of the UN's 2002 Human Development Report, and an economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies and London Business School. She's won awards for her broadcasting and for her blog, Stephanomics and Stephanie will introduce this evening's speakers. But first, welcome again, each one of you, and over to Stephanie Flanders. Thank you. Well, welcome indeed. It's, um, who knew that it would feel like such an appropriate week to be talking about this subject, the whole issue around uh, the morality of markets, of our individualistic society. As a good member of the BBC, I've been looking for balanced ways to describe Thatcher's legacy over the last few days. And I did find it was hard always to talk, even in very economic terms, about her impact and her legacy without caveats and qualifications. The simple question, was she good for the country, even was she good for the economy, the narrower, country, narrower question, is impossible to answer without caveats because I realize it's not just that she was a very divisive figure, but the market itself and the individualistic sort of ethos behind a market is itself so multifaceted and brings with it so much good and also it seemingly inevitably so many things we don't like. I mean, as an economist, I do feel that a market economy has been the most successful engine for raising living standards, for improving the quality of people's lives that we've seen in history. But we know for sure that it's brought some distressing difficult things in its wake as well. You know, economists look at it and they say, well, it's all about incentives and being more efficient. Her supporters, supporters of the market would say it empowered the individual, gave the individual consumer more, more power in our society. But I was struck by the former Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, in one of the films on Newsnight on Monday, saying that the other change that had happened was that it had made it possible, made it acceptable for a chunk a large chunk of society to be selfish, that that was the change that, that happened in the 1980s. And that seems to me very much part of what we're, 
what we're discussing tonight. I guess the only thing I would say, just by way of sort of brief introduction, is the lesson of the last of hundreds of years is that collective institutions aren't necessarily morally good and they don't necessarily behave in a morally good way just by virtue of being collective or by having the word social attached to them any more than just leaving things up to the individual necessarily produces an efficient outcome, let alone a, a moral or a fair one. I think the lesson of history, certainly the lesson of the financial crisis, is that the setting matters. Rules and institutions, whether it's in the city or anywhere else, and social norms, attitudes, those are incentives, those provide incentives as well for people, affect their behavior. Um, and that's obviously one of the things we'll be talking about today, how, social, how, how can moral norms affect not just the country, but also the city that now figures loom so large in all our lives. Before we get to the keynote, I'll just mention that we have Baroness Helena Kennedy. I think some of you will have been expecting Polly Toynbee, <laughs> but uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed with Helena Kennedy. I'm certainly not disappointed with Helena Kennedy. I think we're doing all right. Um, we have Tracy McDermott from the FSA, and we have, or FCA as it now is, um, Peter and Peter Selby, who will all respond to the keynote uh, address. But first, uh, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Vincent Nichols, who was installed as the 11th Archbishop of Westminster in 2009. Bishop Nichols. Thank you. The author Will Self has provided a dramatic image of the city of London's changing skyline. He likened it to a slow-motion firework display as new steel and glass skyscrapers rise and fall, sparkling for a few decades, but by implication at least, destined for ashes. It's easy to paint a depressing vision of the city of any city. Quite apart from the aftershocks of the financial crisis, we could point to exploited workers, impersonal buildings, gated communities, shocking inequality, lonely lives. But I have not come here this evening to announce that we're all doomed. You can leave that to the politicians. City life, and especially the city of London, is often somehow considered to be apart from the rest of society. But the city, any city, is first and foremost where people live and work in all kinds of families and industries. People make the city. It's not built around one area of business. And in this context, the question, what kind of city do we want, takes on a different hue. Can the city, any city, be a place of human flourishing? If so, what's required? These lines from T.S. Eliot's chorus from The Rock point us in the right direction. When the stranger says, what is the meaning of this city? Do you huddle close together because you love each other? What will you answer? We all dwell together to make money from each other. 
or this is a community. If the city is a community, then we all must pursue the things that cultivate community. But to do so means honoring a profound but often ignored truth about our humanity. Our relationships are an intrinsic part of who we are. As human beings, we're not just individuals. We're born into a human community and find our deepest fulfillment as persons in relationship to each other. And I would add, in relationship to God. This idea is central to the Judeo-Christian vision of humanity, created in the image and likeness of God, when Christian revelation is seen to be a communion of persons. The ancient Greeks, too, had a clear view of the purpose of the city, the polis. It was to build a good society, a community where citizens thrived as members of a virtuous community. Aristotle explored this vision. He thought the cultivation of friendship, indeed love, were needed for there to be a good city. He also said the greatest blessing for a state is that its members should possess a moderate and adequate property. Now, this reference to property invites exploration of the specific ways in which cities' resources must serve everyone's good if the city is to have any sense of common destiny. Whatever the activity of the city might be, we're in it together. Like climbers tied together by invisible ropes, where the well-being and the fulfillment of each is in some way dependent on the others. There are ties of trust and solidarity to be recognized and consciously developed. The institutions of business and commerce on which the reputation and the history of the City of London rest have their foundation precisely in those common bonds. Indeed, there are many common goods that only come into being through trust and solidarity. In recent times, I would suggest, narratives about what makes for a good society have been viewed with suspicion. Rather, it's the hard-won individual freedom to pursue my own good in my own way within the law that is most celebrated. This mentality has legitimated the pursuit of narrow self-interest, sometimes with a tendentious claim the benefits will eventually yield better outcomes for everyone. It has made possible the atrophying of common values at the heart of good business and undermined institutions that stand between the market and the state, from the family to all kinds of community forms through which our relationships are indeed enriched and extended. However, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, we have a rare opportunity to learn from our recent past. The protest of the Occupy movement contained some searching questions about inequality, about the need to think hard together, about what can be changed for the good of all. How then 
can we nurture these relationships I'm speaking of? How can we even think about a destiny shared by all the people who work in the city, when the vast majority who work there come and go every day, whether high-paid professionals or those on low pay, providing the transport, the office cleaning, all the other services, whose lives seem totally disconnected from those with headline-making bonuses. Good people bound by good purpose. This is the phrase which I think points us towards an answer. Community is created and common destiny established through the vision, commitment, and relationships which good people form. But what do we mean by good? How is the notion of the good to be explored when we no longer share many of the patterns of thought which have helped to establish its meaning? Rather than cast morality only in terms of dull and boring duty, it can help us to understand desire as a more vital and fundamental driving force of morality. We yearn for love, for relationships of deep friendship, for our lives to have meaning, and to make a contribution. Far from being an externally imposed duty on us, this desire for the good lies deep within us. It reflects our deepest nature as sharing a common humanity and as called into a life of relationships with others. This desire and this call invite us to recognize that the other people matter and respecting others and seeking their good is essential to my own good. Seeking the good, responding to its attractiveness, takes us out of a narrow self-centeredness. It is the path to true human flourishing and development. The truth is, we are all secretly tempted to do good. But the complementary and inconvenient truth is that our desire for the good can easily be, be distorted through selfishness, greed, pride, or lust. Thus, this is the struggle between good and evil that runs right through each of us in every aspect of our lives. We don't like to think in those terms, but we all operate in a moral space, discerning and testing our desires, deciding how to live. And we're caught between, on the one hand, the attractiveness of a good we suspect may not only be transitory, but also carry with it damaging consequences for others, and on the other hand, our capacity and desire for real, extraordinary generosity and selflessness. To learn to live well on this understanding is to learn to practice the virtues, which are both rooted in our dignity and gradually shape our character as persons. By the pursuit of virtue, we act well, not because of external constraint, but because it has become habitual for us to do so. The virtues form us as moral agents, 
so that we do what is right and honourable, irrespective of reward and regardless of obligation. Now, the classical, pivotal or cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, courage and temperament. Permit me a quick glance at each one. They belong to all humanity. They're held in trust, not least in our Christian tradition. Their relevance to good people bound by good purpose is clear. The virtue of prudence, right reason in action, is the opposite of rashness and carelessness. It enables us to discern the good in any circumstance and the right way of achieving it. It enables us to know how to weigh the meaning and the importance of our feelings. The virtue of courage ensures firmness and a readiness to stand by what we believe in times of difficulty. It is the opposite of opportunism or evasiveness. It is the practice of this courage or fortitude in the face of difficulty that produces heroism in every field. Courage is crucial, a crucial element in artistic creativity and it helps those who battle against sickness, injustice or depression. Justice is the virtue by which we strive to give what is due to others by respecting their rights and fulfilling our duties towards them. Justice then expands our sense of self by strengthening the ties between us. Justice towards God is the virtue of religion and that frees us from the tyranny of false gods who so easily claim our worship. The virtue of temperance helps us to moderate our appetites and, and our use of the world's created goods. It's the opposite of consumerism and the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure. Temperance is about learning to desire well. Indeed, it's an essential part of a happy life. Now, the formation of good people, the formation of people of virtue, starts in the family. That's the first school of citizenship. And living stable families are a vital building block of every city. Schools, of course, are the next most important institution, as are universities, and in the context of the city, the business schools. Whilst we should look to these institutions to foster virtue and thereby build character, we can and should also look to the institutions of commerce to nurture and strengthen this same character. If this is to happen, then such institutions will have to have a clear sense of purpose shared across the institution and evidently focused on a wider common good. They will be enterprises of good purpose. Now, the review of 
Staffordshire NHS Trust, where the staff, people, good people in the main, were led by a catalogue of failings to collude in catastrophic failure. In that review, the head of the Professional Standards Authority spoke of leaders having lost sight of their moral purpose. They had forgotten they exist to do good. Concern for finance had taken priority over care, compassion and respect. He said, unless you know the purpose for which you are running an organization, you will never get the ethics right within it. But let's be clear, such a sense of good purpose is not just for the public sector, but also for commercial organizations. Mark Carney, the incoming governor of the Bank of England, spoke recently of the need for companies, and I quote, to define clearly the purpose of their organization and promote a culture of ethical business. And in doing so, for employees to have a broader sense of purpose, grounded in strong connections to their clients and to their communities. We've seen what happens when business or people simply focus on profit as an end in itself and exploit every situation for that end. The true justification of business, I suggest, is when profit is made through delivering a purpose that genuinely adds to human well-being. Business, every business, has an implicit license to operate given by society. In my view, then, businesses, big or small, should be able to demonstrate how they are making the world a better place through providing goods that are truly good and services that truly serve people, and by doing so, create employment and fair returns to investors and minimize harm. Now, any business that wants to stay true to that purpose needs people who not only have the technical skills, but also the character and the virtues of which I have been speaking. Such people become indispensable to the long-term flourishing of the business. Of course, in the short term, greed and ambition can triumph. It always has and will. Out-of-control bonuses were one of the symptoms. But the architects of lasting business success learn to understand and control their own self-interest and genuinely combine it with seeking to serve society through the way their business operates. By acting consistently, doing what they say, setting and acting on high expectations, they create a culture within the organization that strengthens good practice. A business that has a compelling story about its purpose, that lives its values, in this way will crowd in and not crowd out virtue. It will attract, nurture, and reward good people. It will inspire the good in people and help create the common bonds that serve to reduce inequality by providing opportunities and operating in every aspect of its work 
in a fair and equitable way. Part of the interest in business in the exploration of good people bound by good purpose has come from the recognition of the limits of law and regulation. Of course, law and regulation matter, but they're not sufficient. New rules normally deal with the last problem, not the next one. A compliance mentality typically creates perverse incentives and increases bureaucracy. Rules become a lazy proxy for morality. People think if it's not against some rule, then it's okay. And such a society is inherently fragile. What is required, beyond even ethical standards of conduct, is a fundamental transformation of purpose, so that business, maybe the financial sector in particular, is seen by everyone as it should be at the service of the rest of society. A change of language, a change of mission statement is not enough. And the risk of language changing without credible reform is still real. I'm not surprised that commentators such as John Kay say that it will take another financial crisis before the city really wakes up to the scale of reform that is needed. I believe that there's great potential for good in people which far too many employers do not realize or encourage. It is surely bad for business if people feel they have to leave their values at the door when they go to work. It's a mistake if companies have to justify themselves through their additional programs of social benefit or through the philanthropy of their staff. These are good, of course, but they should be supplementary to the shared value created by the core work of the business activity. The vocation to work in business is a good for people and society, but it depends on business having a clear purpose to serve that society. Often, the quality of leadership is crucial. The struggle to maintain the positive purpose of a business or institution is challenging. The temptations of shortcuts, of ignoring or marginalizing uncomfortable questions, these temptations are real and powerful, especially for those in leadership roles. I know. But I also recall a very profound point about leadership made by Vaclav Havel. He said that a key moral choice which leaders often have to make concerns what they appeal to in others. As a leader, do they appeal to the fear in other people? Do they appeal to the greed in other people? Or do they appeal to their selflessness and their desire for a wider good? Business, the media, wider society, in short, our culture is hugely influenced 
by these choices made by leaders in all walks of life. They contribute significantly to the background expectation within which we all make our choices. Being reminded regularly of our wider purpose can prevent us from slipping from those moorings. Having routines which reinforce all that is best in us. For many, the practice of prayer each day is a fine example. Having those routines helps us to remember a good business is a community as well as an organization. It produces people as well as goods and services. And it contributes to the formation or the undermining of society by the way people are treated. As the chief executive of Unilever, Paul Polman, reminded us at the launch of a conference, a blueprint for better business last September, he said, in the long term, no business can succeed in a society that is failing. The city that we want has many other dimensions to it of which I have not spoken. Reduced income inequality, a living wage, the need for much more support of family life in the built environment, a welcome for new communities, efforts to overcome barriers. In many ways, London is a remarkable example of tolerance and vibrant city life. And these are all aspects of community life that are deeply connected to how business operates. The Christian instinct at its best is to see the potential for good in the city. It's interesting to note that the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a city, even if it is not the square mile that the evangelist had in mind. And this beautiful cathedral provides a stunning symbol of the vision of the heavenly city in the midst of the earthly one. It invites us both to gaze upwards and place our hopes and fears in the context of the eternal, yet also its spectacular size and beauty at the same time invites us to our knees to recognize our frailty, our need of one another, and our shared destiny. Humanity has the most extraordinary capacity for good, and I deeply believe that there are great wellsprings of renewal for this city, for every city, in untapped ways of how we organize the world of work at the service of the common good. And I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Archbishop. I think we've, we do feel we've now situated this debate and you've given us a, a wonderful structure um, for continuing the discussion. We're going to go, at least two of the people on our panel have experienced in their sort of daily lives what you might call the sharp end of some of these uh, issues, the presence or more particularly the absence of good um, in financial and other context. Before I ask them to speak, I'm 
being asked to remind you to fill out your question sheets if you haven't already and hold them up to be collected because we will have, I'm assured, a very efficient system for getting the absolute best questions to me up here and then you will, we will be having, I hope, a very lively question and a um, after the responses of our panel and after a bit of discussion among them. So please do, if you haven't already, fill in your forms. I mentioned that we had Helena Kennedy instead of uh, Polly Toynbee. I, I can't think why you wouldn't have invited Helena, Baroness Helena Kennedy in the first place. I think they're both equally brilliant for uh, thinking about these issues. She'll be familiar to many of you as a leading QC barrister, someone who spent her career in the courts, in the House of Lords and everywhere else, battling for human rights, for civil liberties and concerning herself with constitutional issues. Among other things, she was one of the founders of Charter 88 and she's acted in many of the law cases that you'll be most familiar with, like indeed the, the Brighton bombing. So, Baroness Kennedy, what's your uh, brief response to some of that and to these issues? Well, I, I first of all would like to say that I thought that the Archbishop's uh, uh, lecture to us was really inspiring and wonderful, and I want to thank you, uh, Archbishop, for it. I loved the language of it, because words are so important, and, and I hear them, um, and, and I use them in my daily round, of course, as an advocate. And the words that I heard and which resonated with me were those words like community and solidarity, the idea of trust, that in fact at the foundation of the city of London and of business, there has to be trust and trust comes out of a sense of knowing that people behave ethically. The idea of flourishing, of, uh, of yearning for love, of common humanity, which of course all human rights is, is, is based on, that life is made up of relationships, that we need to have respect for the other, um, that their good is essential to my good, the pursuit of virtue and the fostering of virtue and the limits of law. And they're all things that I talk about every day and uh, recently I made a program for the BBC which was called Capital Justice and it was actually looking at the relationship between law and finance, law and markets. And I went back to Adam Smith, a fellow countryman of mine, who is of course given the credit of being the political philosopher whose uh, ideas were, that were at the kind of heart of capitalism. And one of the arguments I was making was that, that the common law which is our system of law, was in fact a very fertile soil for capitalism to work in because it is flexi flexible, because it has this um, incredible ability to uh, grow and change and shift and to respond to particular sets of circumstances. And therefore, it's, it's probably the reason why markets have flourished so well in common law countries. Um, not so rigid in law as, as civil law uh, is, um, and we have that in other places. But the interesting thing was that when I went back to read Adam Smith, I came upon the other book he wrote, which was not his book on capital and on markets, but which was a book on moral sentiments. And his belief that markets are only really of value in a society if they are put in partnership with good law and high ethical standards.
And I'm afraid that I feel that those high ethical standards have been squeezed out. And I think that high ethical standards have actually been squeezed out in lots of places, not just in the city. We've seen it certainly in a lowering of standards, I think, in the financial sector with the selling to people of financial commodities which they couldn't afford and which inevitably were likely to lead to ordinary people carrying the risk that was taken by others who benefited far more than ordinary people. So we saw the privatizing of, of wealth and, uh, and, uh, and the, if you like, the public carrying of, of failure and risk. But we've seen that ethical lowering taking place in other places too. The hacking scandal was about the lowering of standards in journalism and the abandoning of ethics. The police being in the pay of journalists and the lowering of ethical standards there. The whole business of, of, of the political world and the business of, of, uh, of, uh, of people taking monies which were not their due in relation to expenses. And so there's a question we have to ask ourselves, which is a more general question, which is why have we seen uh, a diminution of ethical standards? And I think it is about the way in which we have made wealth a value and that we measure people in our society increasingly because of what they have and what they own and their success is seen as being something measured by wealth. And I think that has been a poison within our system. And, uh, and so I think that when we talk about how can we be good, how can we reignite um, ideas of ethics, that your job as a nurse is caring, and that essentially is at the heart of what you should be doing. That when you're a lawyer, that ethics are essential if the legal system is to survive. And I think that there is a hard job of work to be done about having a better conversation if we want to bring all of that online. I'm afraid that here in the city, I think that there's still a sense that it's back to business as usual. That the sooner we can get this over and the sooner we stop uh, talking about this uh, 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 set of behaviours, then we can start um, uh, seeing growth and, uh, and business will be back on track. I don't believe that. I think we will head for another crisis. And I think we have to have a better conversation about what it does mean to be good. Someone laughed at me recently when they asked me what it was I wanted in life. And I said, I want to be good. And, and the laughter was about how kind of naive it sounded. And yet, I'm not unworldly. I know what makes the world tick. I've spent my life in the courts seeing man's inhumanity to man. I've seen hu human failure up close, and I have failed myself. But all I would say to you is that to be good is something that I think most people yearn to be. And I think that we should have a different kind of conversation. And I'd like to hear our political leaders and our spiritual leaders talking more about what that really means and what it means in respecting the other. And that the language of human rights, for example, is a language we can use to create a better society. Thank you, Hamir. Uh, Well, you're quite right that people are often surprised to see how much moral philosophy there was in Adam Smith and how much he linked the two. One of the interesting strands, I think, in people talking about the failures of economics going into this period is precisely that 
the economists forgot that they had always been situated in more of a political economic framework and a political philosophical framework. They'd sort of forgotten, lost the ability to talk about those issues, and I guess in the way that people in the city maybe lost touch with some of the sort of moral norms and practices that we'd had in past um, periods. But I guess if you're trying to build a new set of taboos, trying to change norms in one direction at the city, the very least you also need to do is have people behave according to the laws that already exist. And uh, Tracy McDermott spends her life on some of the cases that we think of when we think of actual just straightforward malfeasance in the city as director of the F F Financial Conduct Authority, as it is now called, uh, Enforcement and Financial Crime Division. She's been involved with the, many of the financial misspelling, <laughs> misspelling, <laughs> uh, misselling cases. It is actually misspelt here, which is quite amusing in itself. Um, insider dealing, retail misconduct, the sort of the, the far end of some of the, the bad behavior that has actually got to the courts as opposed to all the other behavior that has not got to the courts. Tracy McDermott. Thank you. Um, if I was to ask you for words to describe the city today, I suspect that good wouldn't be one of the first ones that came into mind. Instead, I think the picture that most people have of the city currently is that it houses an industry that can't be trusted that doesn't command or deserve our respect, and an industry which people see as being characterized by people who are focused on greed, arrogance, and a lack of understanding. And we have to stop and ask ourselves why that is, because after all, the city and the financial services industry as a whole actually does much which is good. At its best, the city, the industry, provides us with a way to protect ourselves against mishaps of lives, provides ourselves with a way to run our daily lives, to manage our money, to plan for old age. It provides businesses with finance to grow, to create employment. And despite the sort of people I see typically in my job, most of the people who work in the financial services industry are actually decent, honest, hardworking people. The answer as to why the city is seen that way, though, is unfortunately all too obvious. The financial crisis, wave after wave of mis-selling scandals, the LIBOR scandal, the industry and those within it really have only themselves to blame for how it is perceived. The question which is the question at the heart of tonight's debate is how we move on from that. How do we remake the city to focus on the good and as Helena Kennedy says, not just to say the right thing, but actually to do it. And speaking as a regulator and an enforcer, what is the role of law and regulation in that? Does it have a role, or is it, as the Archbishop suggested, just an excuse for people to absolve themselves of any form of responsibility for their own actions and to think for themselves? I think, in my view, the short answer is that effective regulation and tough, visible enforcement of the law are necessary but not sufficient conditions for a good city. Laws and regulations exist to identify lines that can't be crossed, rules that can't be broken. And at their most effective, they reflect moral norms, areas where there is a clear and accepted view of what is right and what is wrong.
So to move away from the city, if you took the example of burglary, it is obviously a crime. It's viewed seriously by society and the courts. But if the only thing that stopped us from breaking into other people's houses and stealing from them was the fact that it was against the law, then there would be many, many more burglaries or many, many more police. In fact, the reason that most people typically do not commit burglary is because we believe it is morally as well as legally wrong. And that belief system is generally shared by those around us. But what we've seen over the recent years is that the moral underpinning relating to regulations and law in financial services is perhaps not always so effective. So in the LIBOR case, for example, you'll all have seen the emails and the comments made by people on trading floors, which at the same time appeared to recognize that the behavior was wrong, but also treat the wrongdoing in a very casual and cavalier way, almost as a game. And in some of our insider dealing cases, the pleas in mitigation put in after people are found guilty indicate otherwise good people, people who are stalwarts of their local communities, who give money to charity, who do voluntary work, people who would not dream of breaking into a house and stealing someone's television. So what is it that means that people feel that it's okay to break these laws or break these regulations? Why doesn't morality kick in to control them? And why do their colleagues not enforce a morality? Perhaps it's because the victims are less obvious, a faceless computer screen, or less sympathetic, another trader in a big bank rather than the little old lady living down the road. Or perhaps it's because they don't think society cares, that they don't think this is part of the moral fiber. Or perhaps it's because they don't fear the consequences. They don't think they'll get caught, or they don't think the punishment will be sufficient to deter them. And so while I entirely agree with the Archbishop's opening remarks that law cannot be the whole answer, I still think the law and regulation has a significant role to play. Where morals do not act as a deterrent, then the law has to step in. It has to make society's disapproval clear. It has to give courage to the good people in the city to speak out and to make things change, and ultimately to enable us to move on to a place where morality is as much part of the life of the city as it is in the rest of our everyday life. Now, since I asked you to fill in your question forms and hold them up to be collected, I have not seen anybody's hand in the air. I can see that it might feel a bit strange to be doing this, but that you are given full encouragement now to lift up your questions to the heavens. Um, Peter Selby was actually part of uh, the first debate that I was uh, part of uh, here last year with uh, Michael Sandel, which was touching on many of these issues. He was Bishop of Worcester until 2007. He is currently very closely involved with the St. Paul's Institute and has been well known in the past as a former Bishop of Prisons and uh, for his concern about the rights of refugees. He's also written the book Grace and Mortgage, The Language of Faith and the Debt of the World. Peter Selby. Thank you. 
Um, well, <coughs> I, I too very much appreciated uh, the Archbishop's statement, uh, the words in it and the echoes for me of the very remarkable document produced uh, by the last Pope uh, on the economy, which I think is one of the most searching that has been produced by any church in recent times on that subject. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciated the aspirations that were contained in what he had to say and the direction in which he would want us to move. Um, but it raised for me a number of questions. And uh, I hope he won't mind if I say that um, I am, of course, a cleric commenting on the words of another cleric. And one of the things about clerics is that we, our stock in trade is, is exhortation. And um, what tr is troubling me and has been troubling me about uh, my interest in this subject over quite a long period is that it seems to me we've reached a point where exhortation is actually not enough. Um, let, me, let me say, for instance, that uh, the Archbishop was very much talking, as the title of this session suggested, about the good person, the good individual uh, in community. And that's really important. In the course of talking about that, he said that the struggle between good and evil runs through all of us. And I don't expect there's anybody here that's going to deny that. But the problem we face is that the struggles between good and evil in some people carry an awful lot more weight on other people's lives than the struggles of others. And we live at a time when, as it seems, the poorest people are being blamed for a crisis in which they had no part. And I think when we talk about the struggle between good and evil in, in, in people, we need also, therefore, to remember the issues of power, because some people's power is such that they, their ability to promote the good or to promote evil and thereby cause damage or good to other people's lives is considerable. So that's my first question, is what about power in all of this, Archbishop? And then I wanted to pick up a word that Stephanie used in her introduction, which was the word market. And uh, uh, she said that it was, had been one of the most successful ways of raising living standards. Now, I actually love markets. Um, I, I like farmer's markets and I like uh, fruit seller's markets. I think they're really vital places and they offer the freedom to choose to spend a bit more on a cauliflower which has no black marks on it or a bit less on one that does. What bothers me is that the, the word market, when suddenly extrapolated into stocks and shares and financial instruments is not like that at all. It isn't actually giving people choices and indeed what we're seeing is that some people's lives have been substantially ruined by the activities in what is called a market but which neither they nor sometimes even the people involved in it really understand. 
So I think the word market also needs some critical examination. And my last uh, question arising from the Archbishop's lecture is this. I think he offers us the hope that our families and our institutions, and I'm sure he would say our churches, should be schools of virtue. And I think that's a very profound and important hope. But I have to say, in the light of what we've been going through, especially these last five years, I don't think schools of virtue will be sufficient. We also need schools of resistance. We also need to be trained, to be formed, to say no, to say enough is enough, to say there are things we will no longer put up with. And I would like to ask the Archbishop, in the light of the, I think, very warm response to the particular way in which the new Pope has presented himself and his priorities and concerns, whether he thinks his church, and I would say whether I think my church, is prepared to be a school of resistance and what it would mean to help people to become resistant to some of the things that our panel has talked about. This is, I now realise I am also the token economist sitting here, and I'm not going to start uh, defending the market, but I do think, um, Peter, you say uh, some people's lives have been ruined by the market. That's, of course, well, by the market economy, by what we've become. Um, that is, of course, true. I guess what I was trying to say at the beginning is that some people, indeed many people's lives, have been ruined by every economic system that's ever been invented, and certainly by plenty of the ones that came before uh, the world turned to a, a market economy. And the point that we're talking about today is how do you build, within whatever system you have, rules, institutions, and attitudes and practices that help people to be good and help to, to maximize good outcomes. We're going to go to questions in a minute, but I sort of think there is something that's been sort of running through the responses, and I wanted to give the Archbishop a chance to respond to some of, respond to some of the responses. Um, but one person tweeted something while you were speaking, actually. They said, if these does he think that if these virtueless businesses adopt virtues, everything will be all right? And I think there is a bit of a sort of tension that we're saying on the one hand that rules and institutions and laws are not enough, uh, that we need to have people just be better, be a society that has better people in it, have a city that's got better people in it. But I think one of the things that Tracy was saying and that we know from our own experiences that, and from the staff's example that you gave, is that we, we sort of feel that we also need systems that minimize the bad outcomes even when there are bad people within them. And what's the balance or what's the, from where we are now, how do you see those two things, building a system that's safe for bad people and maybe helps pe bad people practice how to be good, 
and just sort of exhorting people to be good? Um, well, could I um, thank my three fellow panelists for their very, very interesting ref responses and reactions. And there's enough here to keep, us, keep me going for quite a long time. But maybe just to start with the last point, I, I was trying to get across in, in the talk that I gave that it wasn't simply about good people. It was good people bound by good purpose. So being explicit and clear and consistent about a sense of corporate purpose is crucial to what I was putting forward. So it was, yes, we do need to, to identify and foster schools of virtue. But they, that should include the business world. That a business with a, a sense of good purpose will itself also be a school of virtue. Now, to move along a bit quickly, um, Peter's point about having schools of resistance is, of course, very attractive. Um, I would like to think that resistance to what is wrong is part of the virtue of courage. Identifying what is wrong is part of the virtue of good judgment. And in that sense, I'm not sure, personally, I would like to have two separate schools, one of virtue and one of resistance. And I, th I really do think the development of a good character in the sense that I was speaking of will produce the resistors as well as the builders. And I would hope that they would recognize in each other that they come from the same stock and therefore are able to work together rather than in a way that is so favored by our society see themselves as antagonists one against the other. If I may also, shall I just carry on? Just yes, a couple more points. Be, yeah. Okay. Um, Peter's, to Peter's point about power. Remember issues of power. And I think that was underlying the paragraphs in which I address the role of leaders. Because when leadership is admitted and open, then it is a much more accountable use of power than patterns of hidden leadership or covert leadership. And Peter's kind reference to the new Pope, to Pope Francis, I think begins to sketch for me, and I think instinctively for others, what is a very attractive use of a very prominent leadership position. What he makes perfectly clear is that his leadership, his power, he wants it to be seen as a service. He makes it very clear that his leadership, his power, needs to be coupled with a personal humility, a personal, a lack of self-aggrandizement. Maybe traveling on the bus is an, a, a tiny example of what he's trying to say. But he's also very clear that in what he chooses to serve, his sense of purpose is resistance. It is resistance to those who would wish to write off sections of humanity who, for their poverty, for their special physical needs, for their 
the, the burden that they bear of sickness or of age. or of, He will resist those who say that part of human life is lacking in worth, is lacking in value. So there are uses of power, and I think, thank you, Peter, for the reference to him, that some of those lessons are seen there. And if I may, one last point, to come to Helena's point about why a diminution of ethical standards in the last however many years. I think philosophically there are two issues. One is our understanding of human nature, whether that is purely subjective and individual or whether through the use of reason, and this is the second point, we can grasp things that are not simply demonstrated by scientific proof, but take us into the realm of abstract thought and therefore into the beginnings of a spiritual awareness of what human nature is about. So the questions of how we understand human nature and the question of the role and the understanding we give to reason properly understood, not simply positivism, but human reasoning I think they are part of the reasons why ethical standards have, 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 have sagged, have lost, because we've let go of the rigor of that discipline. Thank you, Archbishop. We're going to have uh, questions now, and I'm going to call a few people to the microphone at the back uh, in the center. Uh, and apologies if I'm uh, mispronouncing names, but Yasmin Chinwala, Connor Fitzpatrick, Crispin O'Brien and Richard Tobiasevich, if that bears any relation to your name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hopefully there won't be two people with names similar enough. And I think I will probably take uh, at least a couple, maybe all of those, and see where we are, since we don't have a huge amount of time. Yasmin, do you want to uh, start? Hello, Stephanie in the panel. Um, corporations are obliged to act primarily for the benefit of shareholders. How do we, as a society, or our government as our elected representatives, broaden that bottom line remit to incorporate a wider good? Thank you. And Connor? I would argue... I would argue that the kind of city we want is one that is profitable. In these times of economic difficulties, would the panel not prioritize profitability over morals? For instance, financial services is one of the UK's few remaining strengths. Should we not look after that? Crispin? Um, at, at the New Economics Foundation, we're looking at um, project for the purpose of companies beyond short-term financial gain. The question to Helena and the panel is, is the maximization of shareholder value a legal requirement or an excuse for selfish behavior and greed? And I guess we should, so we should take Richard's question and then there's, there's plenty there for us to think about. Yes, um, the communist regime in Poland equalized the wages of doctors and steel workers. 
Uh, it didn't lead to a shortage of doctors. Does the panel think that a high salary is a must to attract the best leaders, or do high salaries actually attract the wrong sort of leaders? Plenty of meat in those, uh, in those questions. I don't know who... Um, well, maybe, I mean, Tracy, given that this is uh, quite a few questions directly on the point of, of corporate behaviour, I don't know if there's any in there that you would want to uh, address. I mean, certainly there has been an issue, you know, is Europe right to be just say, to be trying to limit bankers' bonuses? I mean, everyone in the city and in sort of economic opinion in the UK has been against that, but, um, you know, how do you see those? Um, there's two questions about corporates. One is about shareholder value and profitability, and, and the other is around salary. I'll start with the salary one first. I think that one of the risks of focusing the debate all about bonuses and focusing the debate on absolute numbers is that however surprising some of those numbers may be to most of us, actually the thing that makes people behave badly is not per se the amount of money they get paid. We see all too many people in, in my line of work who actually aren't earning astronomical sums of money, who don't gain significant financial benefit from their misconduct, um, but actually do the wrong thing. And you also see people making very large sums of money who actually do the right thing. So I think there is a risk if you focus entirely on the numerical amount of somebody's, um, somebody's remuneration that you lose the actual fundamental question, which is how do they behave? Um, in terms of the European initiatives in relation to um, limiting the amount of, of bonuses, one of the risks there is, as has been talked about a lot, the fact that fixed remuneration will go up. And that is at a time when, over the past couple of years, we have seen banks doing much more in terms of clawing back bonuses, which is something which is much more possible in the current system. So I think, um, clearly, the inequality between the levels of salary paid between people at the very top of the income scale in the UK and the very bottom of the income scale is actually something which I think, as a personal matter, I do have a concern about, but I don't think the primary driver of bad behaviour is just the fact that they've got a large bonus. Peter Selby, you were, you were scribbling away at when there was uh, mention of broadening the remit of, of companies. I guess there's a whole corporate social responsibility agenda which has touched on this idea of should, sh should there be more to companies than maximising shareholder value? Well, <coughs> um, earlier in the, in, in, in the discussion, the phrase fair returns was used. Um, and I think part of the, one of the big questions is, is there something called enough? Um, this, I, I was very much involved in a, in a quite serious disagreement um, when I was in, working in the, in the church over the, over the fact that the, the, the job of even of a charity, this is not just companies, was to maximize returns, whereas um, some of the philanthropists of the 19th century 
who created charitable work, for instance, social housing, thought that, there that yes, you were entitled to a fair return, but not to the maximum return you could possibly get. And, and I think that's a really important discussion, and not only for charities. Well, um, I did nudge Peter um, uh, when he was talking about um, let's start resisting, let there be training for resistance and people should say no. And I said to him, you old radical you. And, uh, and, uh, and we used to make, often make common cause in the House of Lords together. Um, I used to sit near him because I thought that I might uh, receive a bit of spiritual um, uh, imbuing if I sat close to the, to, to the uh, bishop's benches. But I, f I feel very strongly about this. I actually think that we should be revisiting capitalism and saying, what is it about? And I think that we've lost sight of some of the things that uh, Adam Smith wrote about, which is that, that there should be um, uh, a fairness in what we think is um, uh, the, the right kind of profit to make. If we thought maximizing profit was a complete end in itself, then we would see wages being screwed to the ground and people being paid pittances. And we don't want to see that because we know that the just society, the good society, depends on levels of fairness. And one of the things that is not good about our current society is the way in which the divisions are, are growing between rich and poor, and we've lost sight of that. And I think that, that we should be looking at ways in which businesses shouldn't just be doing corporate social responsibility and trying to, as many of them, I'm afraid, some of the banks are doing now, is we're, we're seeing reputation laundering as well as money laundering. The reputation laundering is, what can we be seen to do that's got high visibility that shows that we're really make, giving, doing penitence for the bad things we've done? Well, I'm all for a bit of that. A bit of penitence would be good. But I, I also think we should be actually looking at the whole way in which capitalism is working and saying that this turbocharged capitalism is not what's needed for the good society and that we should be paying people better wages, that we should have workers more involved on boards, that we should be actually doing things like John Lewis does, having shareholding by um, the, 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 the workforce, but not, as was being suggested by government recently, that, the, that you be give, given some shares as a deal for removing some of your entitlements as a worker, some of your workers' rights. That you'll sign away your rights for getting a few shares. Well, I'm not for that. But I really think that we have to again say, what is fair? And I don't think we talk about it enough. And I think it will mean less in the hands of those people who get bonuses and who run businesses. I think people are paid far too much. And I think many good people are happy to be doctors, to be certain kinds of lawyers, where they don't get fat on it. They live good lives, professional lives, and that was always the way until more recently. And I'd like to see us recovering some of our sense of what values uh, are, there really ought to be. That's. I'm going to get before I before I go back to you, Archbishop. I want to get a couple more questions in because I know we're about to run out of time. Um, there's, if if they could come, uh, just two more people coming to the mic, and then I have a couple of other questions that have come from the audience. But William Wright and Abigail Fryman. And while you're coming up to just behind the dome here in the middle, uh, there's a couple of other questions which I thought were quite 
helpful. How do we ensure that better conversations happen with people who don't actively choose to be good? And can the panel, do we, ever, do we choose actively to be bad? Maybe, maybe some people do. Can the panel give one or two, this actually goes partly to Helena's point, can the panel give one or two practical steps to make the city more ethical? What could you do right now? William Wright, are you, uh, are you there? Hello. I was just wondering, um, bankers and traders are soon going to have to sit an ethics test as part of their professional qualifications. And I'm just wondering if a system that involves ethics exams is doomed to be unethical. Um, a, question for the uh, sorry, a question for the Archbishop. Um, how do you propose that city workers espouse these um, cardinal virtues and yet the city retain its competitiveness in an increasingly pressured global setting? I'm glad that you asked that question because <clears throat> I wanted to also put back to our, the Archbishop, um, I think it was Connor Fitzpatrick's question, which is, you know, both of those in a way are quite brave questions to ask in the context of this debate, but assume uh, that we were able to take great steps uh, to change the way the city worked, uh, but in the course of that, it caused uh, quite a lot more uh, economic damage to the economy, even fewer taxes going into the Chancellor, um, and seriously damaged our sort of global competitiveness at a time where we're already suffering, the, by some measure, the worst period for our economy in over a century. Do you care about that? Would that matter if that was the consequence? Well, I think I'd like the opportunity to spend a, a little bit more time wondering whether these, in fact, are alternatives. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the pursuit of a, a clear, coherent purpose within a business and its nurturing of virtuous behavior makes it less competitive. In fact, I suspect in the long run, it doesn't. It might actually make it more competitive. Not least because there might be within that enterprise a much stronger shared sense of corporate effort. And that, very briefly, can be connected with the question of levels of salary. I have always understood, and it's certainly true in my own life personally, that levels of salary are only one factor in motivation. And in fact, often, they're a small factor in what motivates people. I know there are some theorists who say levels of salary are what they call hygienic factors. If the salary is not right, then people are disgruntled. But salary in itself is not a strong positive motivator. And it's in order, I think, for a company, an enterprise, to identify what it is searching to do and to express that clearly and well, which will motivate and will make that enterprise more competitive than purely the measures of profit and salary will do on their own. Recently, I've sat with numbers of business leaders, 
And on the question of shareholder value, uh, some of them would say no business can be afforded, can afford to be judged on its return to shareholders alone. Because if you do that, then you place into the shareholders' hands effective control of the business. And if shareholders begin to expect quarterly returns, then they shape the business as a short-term profit-centered enterprise. And that has to be, I think, resisted. What these business leaders were saying were there are at least five things by which the health of a business is to be judged. And these would include the quality of relationships with employees and their families, that's investing in the next generation of people who might want to work for this company. Secondly, the, the growth in employment that a company can create. Thirdly, the quality of the goods and services that it actually provides. Are they genuinely good? Are they genuinely services? Fourthly, the tax they pay and the tax they don't avoid. And then fifthly, the shareholder return. But it needs, in that sense, a much broader view to look at what is a successful business. And I think those things are already there, but they just need to be brought much more to the fore. So, two comments really. How do we judge a good business and how do you motivate people to become more competitive and effective? And I'm sure it's not just through salaries or through regulation. Come in. Yes, Helena. I thought that Tracy made an incredibly important um, point um, that is that, that also kind of resonated with something that Peter said about markets, and I think it's something that we're all talking about. I too am a supporter of markets. I actually believe that um, that the whole business of of, of exchange is, 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 is what our society is built on and markets depend on relationships and so forth, and I think that you can have ethical markets. What I think, though, we have to be conscious of is the way in which, as Tracy said, a distance has been created where if you don't see your customer, your consumer, if you're not really aware of who that person really is, then they stop having a, a, pers a personhood. They stop being somebody who is going to suffer the consequences of what you might be doing. And I think that new technologies are leading to a distancing um, from the consumer, so that we speak on the telephone to somebody in a call center somewhere where we're trying to get hold of the bank. And when you've got, you've got a, a problem, you can't get it resolved with the water board because you can't get through to the person whose responsibility it is. And people are faceless and the connection is no longer there. You don't have your bank manager anymore whom you can go in and see and talk about the problem with your mortgage. And so I think that that, that depersonalization of relationships is part of the, if you like, the license that gives people the, the notion that it's really only about money and not all those other things. There's something about that mm. too in modernized businesses. There was someone, I'm afraid, who did look, I'm, I'm just gonna try, I'm gonna try to get Lydia to come to the microphone because she got, she got left off my previous list if she's reasonably near the mic. And then I think we'll just have to have a couple of final comments from the others. Thank you. I had a um, specific question for Tracy, and I'm thinking about culture, because what you were talking about was a culture where somebody does something wrong, the person next to them doesn't speak up, 
the boss doesn't speak up, and it's pervasive. So in the FSA and now the FCA, what have you done to help your 5,000 or so employees be really strong, good, moral individuals who can demand that kind of respect? And I should say, in all of the manuals on this subject for financial regulation around the world, number one on the list of answers to that question is usually you pay them more. In all the sort of, I'm just saying in terms of where the, where the debate in the sort of economic world is, the World Bank goes into countries and says, if you want to have good financial regulators, you have to pay them more because the bankers are paid so much. They're always going to go native, they're always going to go and work at a bank rather than be uh, at the uh, supervisory authority. But Tracy. Um, I can assure you that we don't pay regulators <laughs> in the UK the same as we pay bankers in the UK. Um, I think it's, it's a really interesting question because one of the, uh, the factors of the political environment currently and the social environment currently is that actually it's very popular to be a regulator. It's very popular to be telling bankers or other financial services professionals what to do. It's very popular to be laying down the law and rattling sabers and so on. But a few years ago, that wasn't the case. Um, and I dare say that in a few years, it may also not be the case again. And one of the, the hallmarks that needs to be there as an, an effective regulator is a willingness to stand by judgments and to stand against the tide. Um, and that is something which is very much at the forefront of the minds of, of those of us at the FCA and indeed those of us at the PRA who've been through the experience of the last few years. Um, in terms of practical steps, some of it is around that experience. A lot of it is around trying to ensure that people have the confidence that actually if you make bold decisions and judgments, sometimes you will get those wrong. Um, and when you're challenging people on the other side, they will be coming back and pointing out all the ways you get them wrong. And what you need to have as an employer, as a regulator, is a culture where people are supported in making sensible judgments and recognize that actually we won't always get it right. And at the moment, we have societal support in doing that. The big challenge will be when the societal support disappears um, and we have to continue to have the courage of our convictions. Um, I would echo something the Archbishop said earlier, though. One of the huge advantages we have at the regulator is actually most people who work for us do it because they believe that they can make um, the industry better by doing so. They're not there for the money, they're there because they actually genuinely believe in the purpose for why we exist. Um, and that's a great help in trying to ensure people um, make courageous, bold decisions. In some countries, there's been a problem of, uh, and in, in the past, sometimes here, people have talked about the revolving door. I mean, how many of your colleagues, excuse me, <coughs> go on to work for private financial firms after leaving? Um, probably a very significant amount. I mean, I think the... the so a very significant number. A very significant amount. I don't know the, the numbers. Because that's another reason why people work for less money at the FCA, so that they then can go to a bank. <laughs> um, you, have a, you have a very cynical view of, um, of um, <laughs> the way in which people come into the, the regulator. I mean, I think um, there are... Uh, the, the revolving door is not necessarily of itself a, 
a bad thing to have people with experience and industry of what it's actually like to be on a trading floor trying to be the ones who supervise um, those people on a trading floor. What you clearly need to do is to ensure that there is absolute independence um, of, of mind and integrity in the way people do go about their their day-to-day -day work and I think if you um, talk to people within um, the the FCA you would certainly find that one of the things I talked about in my initial remarks was the risk that people don't comment when people do the wrong thing I think you would find within the regulator that that is definitely not the case that people will speak out if they think somebody is doing the wrong thing and if there was any perception that their views were being colored by thinking there might be a lucrative job at the end of it, um, I think that's something which would be picked up on very quickly. Thank you, Tracy. Peter Selby, you're going to end up, as the bells are tolling, you're going to end up with the final um, a a few words on this, um, because you haven't had so much chance to respond, unless you feel that you don't need to have the final word. Uh, I had thought possibly that that the Archbishop might want to respond and I'm very happy to let that happen and not take time. Um, I think I've said I've quite a told, bit. Because I know that uh, Baroness Kennedy and, and probably others too, we, ha we had to finish on time so yes. I was nervous. But do yes, of course. If I've got two sentences. Two sentences. So if somebody wants... Yep. Two sentences is My good. two sentences are these. Firstly, I'm very heartened by the desire of business illustrated this evening to reconnect and I think also to recognize that business, for its moral context and, stand, and standards, depends on society. It's not as if business operates in a vacuum. And the challenge that faces the business world is one that is faced by the whole of society. And then secondly, I would want to speak up for the dignity of the vocation of wealth creation and enterprise and affirm its potential for good especially in the service of the, its wider society. Thank you. Thank you, Archbishop. Uh, thank you to everyone here. Thank you for all your very good questions. I mean, I think, I th I think there, have been, there have been so many issues here that we can't, we can't possibly get onto. But I think, you know, one of the things that does strike me, I sort of grew up with what was known as the private eye rule. You know, don't do anything that you don't want to see in private eye and there's a funny sort of thing that I think I've been struck in some of in lots of different parts of society whether it's about evading taxes or financial crimes or other things the way that people don't seem to mind anymore when things are revealed in a way that it, it's no longer unacceptable to have done all of you all you can to avoid taxes or whatever it might be so I think a lot of those issues have been here and I'm glad we raised it but and I want to thank our panelists but I particularly want to thank you Archbishop you said that language couldn't be everything, that language wasn't everything. Um, there had to be a, a fundamental change. But language is a very good start. And I agree with Helena that the language of your uh, remarks bears a lot more discussion and, and thought than we've been able to give it tonight. And I hope that I assume that it will be on the website, yep. your uh, remarks, because I think we could all do with uh, reading them at least once more. Um, so thank you very much, Archbishop, and thank you all for coming.